They must be very well off, though, said Mrs. Tulliver, for everything's as nice as can be all over the house, and that watered silk she had on cost a pretty penny. Sister Pullet has got one like it. Ah, said Mr. Tulliver, he's got some income besides the curacy, I reckon. Perhaps her father allows em something. There's Tom will be another hundred to him, and not much trouble either. By his own account, he says, teaching comes natural to him. That's wonderful now, added Mr. Tulliver, turning his head on one side and giving his horse a meditative tickling on the flank. Perhaps it was because teaching came naturally to Mr. Stelling that he set about it with that uniformity of method and independence of circumstances which distinguish the actions of animals understood to be under the immediate teaching of nature. Mr. Broderip's amiable beaver, as that charming naturalist tells us, busied himself as earnestly in constructing a dam in a room up three pair of stairs in London, as if he had been laying his foundation in a stream or lake in Upper Canada. It was Binney's function to build. The absence of water, or a possible progeny, was an accident for which he was not accountable. With the same unerring instinct, Mr. Stelling set to work at his natural method of instilling the Eton grammar and Euclid into the mind of Tom Tulliver. This, he considered, was the only basis of solid instruction. All other means of education were mere charlatism, and could produce nothing better than smatterers. Fixed on this firm basis, a man might observe the display of various or special knowledge made by irregularly educated people with a pitying smile. All that sort of thing was very well, but it was impossible these people could form sound opinions. In holding this conviction, Mr. Stelling was not biased, as some tutors have been, by the excessive accuracy or extent of his own scholarship, and as to his views about Euclid, no opinion could have been freer from the personal partiality. Mr. Stelling was very far from being led astray by enthusiasm, either religious or intellectual. On the other hand, he had no secret belief that everything was humbug. He thought religion was a very excellent thing, and Aristotle a great authority, and deaneries and prebends useful institutions, and Great Britain the providential bulwark of prodotism, and faith in the unseen a great support to afflicted minds. He believed in all these things, as a Swiss hotel-keeper believes in the beauty of the scenery around him, and in the pleasure it gives to artistic visitors. And in the same way Mr. Stelling believed in his method of education, he had no doubt that he was doing the very best thing for Mr. Tulliver's boy. Of course, when the miller talked of mapping and summing in a vague and diffident manner, Mr. Stelling had set his mind at rest 
by an assurance that he understood what was wanted, for how was it possible that the good man could form any reasonable judgment about the matter? Mr. Stelling's duty was to teach the lad in the only right way. Indeed, he knew no other. He had not wasted his time in the acquirement of anything abnormal. He very soon set down poor Tom as a thoroughly stupid lad, for though by hard labour he could get particular declensions into his brain, anything so abstract as the relation between cases and terminations could by no means get such a lodgment there as to enable him to recognise a chance genitive or dative. This struck Mr. Stelling as something more than natural stupidity. He suspected obstinacy, or at any rate indifference, and lectured Tom severely on his want of thorough application. "'You feel no interest in what you're doing, sir,' Mr. Stelling would say, and the reproach was painfully true. Tom had never found any difficulty in discerning a pointer from a setter. When once he had been told the distinction, and his perceptive powers were not at all deficient. I fancy they were quite as strong as those of Reverend Mr. Stelling, for Tom could predict with accuracy what number of horses were cantering behind him. He could throw a stone right into the centre of a given ripple. He could guess to a fraction how many lengths of his stick it would take to reach across the playground and could draw almost perfect squares on his slate without any measurement. But Mr. Stelling took no note of these things. He only observed that Tom's faculties failed him before the abstractions hideously symbolized to him in the pages of the Eton Grammar, and that he was in a state bordering on idiocy with regard to the demonstration that two given triangles must be equal, though he could discern with great promptitude and certainty the fact that they were equal. Whence Mr. Stelling concluded that Tom's brain, being peculiarly impervious to etymology and demonstrations, was peculiarly in need of being ploughed and harrowed by these patent implements, it was his favourite metaphor that the classics and geometry constituted that culture of the mind which prepared it for the reception of any subsequent crop. I say nothing against Mr. Stelling's theory. If we are to have one regimen for all minds, he seems to me as good as any other. I only know it turned out as uncomfortably for Tom Tulliver as if he had been plied with cheese in order to remedy a gastric weakness which prevented him from digesting it. It is astonishing what a different result one gets by changing the metaphor. Once called the brain an intellectual stomach, and one's ingenuous conception of the classics and geometry as ploughs and harrows seemed to settle nothing. But then it is open to someone else to follow great authorities and call the mind a sheet of white paper or a mirror. 
in which case one's knowledge of the digestive process becomes quite irrelevant. It was doubtless an ingenuous idea to call the camel the ship of the desert, but it would hardly lead one far in training that useful beast. Oh, Aristotle, if you had had the advantage of being the freshest modern instead of the greatest ancient, would you not have mingled your praise of metaphorical speech as a sign of high intelligence with a lamentation that intelligence so rarely shows itself in speech without metaphor, that we can so seldom declare what a thing is, except by saying it is something else. Tom Tulliver, being abundant in no form of speech, did not use any metaphor to declare his views as to the nature of Latin. He never called it an instrument of torture, and it was not until he had got on some way in the next half-year, and in the delectus, that he was advanced enough to call it a bore and beastly stuff. At present, in relation to this demand that he should learn Latin declensions and conjugations, Tom was in a state of as blank unimaginativeness concerning the cause and tendency of his sufferings, as if he had been an innocent shrew-mouse imprisoned in the split trunk of an ash-tree in order to cure lameness in cattle. It is doubtless almost incredible to instructed minds of the present day that a boy of twelve, not belonging strictly to the masses, who are now understood to have the monopoly of mental darkness, should have had no distinct idea how there came to be such a thing as Latin on this earth. Yet so it was with Tom. It would have taken a long while to make conceivable to him that there ever existed a people who bought and sold sheep and oxen, and transacted the everyday affairs of life through the medium of this language, and still longer to make him understand why he should be called upon to learn it, when its connection with those affairs had become entirely latent. So far as Tom had gained any acquaintance with the Romans at Mr. Jacob's Academy, his knowledge was strictly correct, but it went no farther than the fact that they were in the New Testament, and Mr. Stelling was not the man to enfeeble and emasculate his pupil's mind by simplifying and explaining, or to reduce the tonic effect of etymology by mixing it with smattering, extraneous information, such as is given to girls. Yet, strange to say, under this vigorous treatment, Tom became more like a girl than he had ever been in his life before. He had a large share of pride, which had hitherto found itself very comfortable in the world, despising old goggles, and reposing in the sense of unquestioned rights. But now this same pride met with nothing but bruises and crushings. Tom was too clear-sighted not to be aware that Mr. Stelling's standard of things was quite different. 
was certainly something higher in the eyes of the world than that of the people he had been living amongst, and that, brought in contact with it, he, Tom Tulliver, appeared uncouth and stupid. He was by no means indifferent to this, and his pride got into an uneasy condition which quite nullified his boyish self-satisfaction and gave him something of the girl's susceptibility. He was a very firm, not to say obstinate, disposition, but there was no brute like rebellion and recklessness in his nature. The human sensibilities predominated, and if it had occurred to him that he could enable himself to show some quickness at his lessons, and so acquire Mr. Stelling's approbation by standing on one leg for an inconvenient length of time, or wrapping his head moderately against the wall, or any voluntary action of that sort, he would certainly have tried it. But no, Tom had never heard that these measures would brighten the understanding, or strengthen the verbal memory, and he was not given to hypothesis and experiment. It did occur to him that he could perhaps get some help by praying for it, but as the prayers he said every evening were forms learned by heart, he rather shrank from the novelty and irregularity of introducing an extempore passage on a topic of petition for which he was not aware of any precedent. But one day, when he had broken down for the fifth time in the supines of the third conjugation, and Mr. Stelling convinced that this must be carelessness since it transcended the bounds of possible stupidity, had lectured him very seriously, pointing out that if he failed to seize the present golden opportunity of learning supines, he would have to regret it when he became a man. Tom, more miserable than usual, determined to try his sole resource, and that evening, after his usual form of prayer for his parents and little sister, he had begun to pray for Maggie when she was a baby, and that he might be able always to keep God's commandments, he added in the same low whisper, and please to make me always remember my Latin. He paused a little to consider how he should pray about Euclid, whether he should ask to see what it meant, or whether there was any other mental state which would be more applicable to the case. But at last he added, and make Mr. Stelling say, I shan't do Euclid any more. Amen. The fact that he got through his supines without mistake the next day encouraged him to persevere in this appendix to his prayers, and neutralized any skepticism that might have arisen from Mr. Stelling's continued demand for Euclid. But his faith broke down under the apparent absence of all help when he got into the irregular verbs. It seemed clear that Tom's despair under the caprices of the present tense, did not constitute a notice worthy of interference, and since this was the climax of his difficulties, 
where was the use of praying for help any longer? He made up his mind to this conclusion in one of his dull, lonely evenings, which he spent in the study, preparing his lessons for the morrow. His eyes were apt to get dim over the page. Though he hated crying and was ashamed of it, he couldn't help thinking with some affection even of Spouncer, whom he used to fight and quarrel with. He would have felt at home with Spouncer, and in a condition of superiority. And then the mill, and the river, and Yap pricking up his ears, ready to obey the least sign when Tom said, Boy! would all come before him, in a sort of calenture, when his fingers played absently in his pocket with the great knife and his coil of whipcord, and other relics of the past.' 